there's a well-known tennis star who defeated Chris Everett Lloyd some years ago. And after the match was asked how she felt about her win, she said, I feel like I own the world. All of the practice, all of the traveling, all of the suffering have been worth it. She was also asked how long that feeling lasted. She said, oh, about two minutes. I remember reading that and thinking, you know, that's a lot like what we are. That we will pursue headlong, headstrong things in our lives, and yet they only last but just a brief moment. That we will work so hard for that special vacation only to come back again to the daily grind and the yard that has to be mowed because we've been gone for so long. We'll live for the weekend only to face again Monday morning. We will try all our lives to win the approval of our parents only to come and find out you've got to continue to do more and more and more for that approval to stay there. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to live your life in addition to the the normal duties that do fade away, the importance of those things, to be able to also live your life for something that lasts beyond next week? Well, I'd like for us to focus for the next little bit and talk about that. And let's look together in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. It's been actually several weeks since we've been here. We started a series called Faith in Times Like These. And uh, we've taken several week break from it. And now we're going to come back to it. And as we do, let's kind of talk about where we've been in it so that as we hit the ground, we can hit the ground running. What has Peter taught us so far in chapter 1 all the way through verse 21? Well, if you've been with us, you may remember that Peter is writing to people that are struggling. People who are struggling with uh, trials, struggling with persecution. And he's telling them that you can laugh through your tears, as it were, or basically you can make it through the pain, in spite of the pain, because you know that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your pain is temporary. It's necessary because it, it strengthens your faith, but it's temporary. And you can know that, and that gives you some sense of strength to know that it is going to come to an end. Peter also says that we're not to focus on simply the things that are here and now, but he says very pointedly to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So essentially Peter's saying, yeah, we've got the daily grind, but the daily grind is not the end of it. Think about the end of it. Keep an eternal perspective in your life. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. And so now as we continue in chapter 1, starting in verse 22, he doesn't change his theme much, but he narrows the focus even more to say, yeah, you need to think about what lasts. Now here's what lasts. Here's what you are to focus your life on as priority. Let's look together. Verse 22, Peter begins. He says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You catch something he said twice there? He says, you love, now I want you to love. 
Why does Peter tell a people who are loving to be loving? Because what we have here in English is the same word love, but the way Peter wrote it originally is two different words. First one's Philadelphia. You don't have to struggle long to learn how to pronounce that one. It's a Greek word that means brotherly love. And so we have our city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this word is a word that talks about love of friendship. It's the kind of love that's easy to have. It's the kind of love that you have on your first date with puppy love. It's the kind of uh, love that you have talking to your neighbor over the fence. Hey, how's it going? Boy, you really enjoy spending time with somebody. It's the kind of love that we have at potluck lunches as we're out there on the courthouse lawn enjoying fellowship with one another. It's the kind of a love that you have with Christians, even more so that you feel more so with your, your church family than you do perhaps with extended family who maybe don't know the Lord. It's a feeling love. It's a love totally based on how you feel and the joy that you get in being around somebody. And it's a legitimate love. There's nothing wrong with it. But the only problem with it is, if it's by itself, it becomes incredibly selfish. Because if the goal of that love, and it is, is to feel good, what happens when you're around somebody and they no longer make you feel good? What happens to that kind of love at that moment? Well, the answer is it's over. And this is what our culture calls falling in and out of love. When actually it's one kind of love, but it's not the kind of love that lasts. So Peter says to this love of feeling, to this love that's based on feeling and that's it, you need to add another love to it. And that love goes beyond the Philadelphia love to the love called agape love. The Philadelphia love is totally based in feeling. The agape love is totally based in decision. He says, you have a sincere love of the brethren. You've got that Philadelphia feel-good love. Now you need to add to that, fervently love one another from the heart. And there is where he uses the word agape, meaning it's a word of sacrifice. It's a word that you love by action, not because you feel like it, but because you value the person or the thing in which you're acting, in which you're loving. One based on feeling, one based on decision, regardless of feeling. So here's an application for us from this very first verse. That is that God commands us to go beyond feeling love for one another to showing love for one another. I want to ask you a question, and uh, one of the neat things about teaching or preaching as I can crawl into your mind and I can say things to you I'd never say to you in just a private conversation. And so I want to ask you a question. And in the privacy of where you're sitting, I want you to really think about the answer. Ask this to yourself. Do I love others? Do I show love to others? Only when they make me feel good. Think about all the different relationships of significance that you have. Begin, first of all, with the most significant ones living under perhaps the same roof. Where very quickly that Philadelphia feel-good love can go away. And you're left with, if there's any love there, the agape love of decision and commitment. 
do you show love only when the other person makes you feel good or do you show love regardless? It's a pretty convicting little question, isn't it? And I think all of us, if we're honest, have to say, no, we don't. We're pretty much conditional love. People who love conditionally. We all experience that Philadelphia feel-good love. Peter's saying, that's great, but if that's all you got, it isn't going to last. you got to add to that the love of self-sacrifice that has nothing to do with your feelings, has everything to do with your decisions. The Bible describes this kind of a selfless love as patient, as kind, not jealous, not arrogant, not selfish, not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A love, in fact, that never fails. Without that kind of a love, you've got the, 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 the feeling love that becomes essentially a love of selfishness. But with it, when you add these two together, as Peter's saying you should, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got commitment in spite of feeling, and it's funny what happens when you start loving in the selfless sense, that feeling aspect of it comes right back in time. Henry Nouwen made a great statement. He says, if you allow someone to love you, that love will take you to painful places. And I'd like to go beyond that and say... Don't wait for somebody to love you. Because the command that's given us here today is not for others to love you. It's a command for you to love others. Love is not a right that you have. It's a responsibility that you have for other people. Why should we place such a priority on loving God's people? I want you to look around you for a second. Think about the people that are sitting beside you. Some of them very significant in relationships to you. Some of them probably total strangers. But even friends that may be sitting beside you or in front of you that you're going to see a little bit later in the lobby. There are people there that are hurting. I certainly can't meet all those needs. I'm not supposed to. We as a body of Christ are supposed to minister to each other. And so for us to come, you know, and walk through and, hey, how you doing? Boy, doing great. And inside, you're dying. It is an absolute total shame if you've been coming here for years and you don't know anybody on a level other than the Philadelphia love. That's a total shame. Because you're, you're, you're in the Christian life by yourself and that's the worst place to be. You need to get involved on a level to where you can let somebody get involved in your life and where you can get involved in somebody else's life. Don't just come show up and listen and leave. That's great, but I'll tell you what, that's only going to give you one aspect of the love that you need as a believer in your life. And I'll tell you what, it's going to leave you unfulfilled. It really is. God commands us to go beyond the love of feeling to the love of showing. Don't wait for somebody to love you. You love somebody. You're always going to have pain. Don't wait till you stop hurting before you feel like you can help somebody else. You make that first move and see what God does in your Christian life.
Why should we place such a priority in loving God's people like this? I mean, this is a major sacrifice. Why? Peter tells us why. Verse 23, through the end of the chapter, he says, Why do it? For you have been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever, and this is the word which is preached to you. What's his point? His point is not just that the word of God is eternal, but that people are eternal. He says, this is the word that was preached to you. He says, you have been born of seed which is not imperishable, or not, not perishable, but imperishable. And particularly as he speaks to Christians, he says that you, as you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe in something that has given you eternal life, not eternal death. Why should we have this kind of a commitment to people? Because people last forever. We don't focus on what fades. We focus on what lasts. People. I received an email uh, some time ago, one of those ones that gets passed around a thousand times before you get it. And this one, usually I trash them, by the way, but this one is uh, I, I really enjoyed because it, it made me think about what our priority is. And that was, basically it asked the question, can you think about three people? Who are the three wealthiest people on the planet right now? Who are the three last Miss Americas? Can you, can you name them? Who are the three people who uh, are the most famous, perhaps, for Oscars? Best actor, best actress. Who are those people? Probably you can't remember. Maybe you get one, two, whatnot. Probably not very many of us at all can get all of them. Why not? I mean, they're the best in their field. Nobody's better than that. And yet we can't even remember their names. Why is that? Well, let me ask it another way. How many of you can remember three teachers as you were growing up that really made a deep impact into your education? How many of you can remember three heroes throughout history whose stories you've read that have inspired you? to live a certain way. How many of you can remember or think about people throughout your lifetime who you would absolutely love to see again? What's the difference? What's the difference over the last several years of can't remember who Miss America was to remembering Mrs. Gillick McGillicuddy back in second grade who, who taught you to spell the word beautiful? What's the difference there? Why does one last and one not last. I'll tell you why. Because people are what last. People are what eternal. What are eternal? Not the Oscars. Not Miss America. Not the things that fade. People are the things that last. Christmas card had these words on it. I asked God to take away my pride... God said no, that it was not 
for him to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to give me happiness. God said no. He said he gives blessings. Happiness is up to me. I asked God if he loved me. God said yes. And he gave his son who died on the cross for my sins. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. And God said, ah, finally, now you have the idea. We're to love the things not that fade. We're to devote our lives to the things not that fade, but the things that last. And what's the first thing that Peter's told us here as we end chapter 1? That last? God's people. God's people. People. What's the other thing he's told us? God's Word. And having told us that, he now begins chapter 2 with one of the most stinging rebukes as we get into it that a believer can read. He says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What's one thing you can notice here in verse 1? All of these things that he mentions are a direct contradiction to the selfless love that was commanded at the end of chapter 1. The Philadelphia love, it'll put up with malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, but the agape love won't. If you've got true love in your relationships, you are not going to tolerate malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in your life. Not the way others treat you, but the way you treat other people. That's contradictory to the Word of God. And so Peter says, all these things, set them aside. Having set that aside, now what are we to embrace? The Word of God. Like a baby craves milk, we are to crave the Word of God. Back in April, in fact, uh, it was on Good Friday, there was a husband and wife down in Colombia, in a Colombian airport, that were arrested because they tried to smuggle seven pounds of cocaine on a flight to Mexico. The thing that gave it away was, what the, was that the police uh, chief, who was there at the customs, picked up their Bible, and it weighed <laughs> over seven pounds. This couple had laced the pages of Scripture with cocaine and trying to get it through. And I read that and I thought, that is just what we do. Maybe not with drugs, but we will often treat this book like a prop, as a disguise for our sin, as opposed to allowing it to reveal it. We'll walk around, usually on Sunday mornings, and we'll hold it, giving the impression that we read it, giving the impression that we live it, giving the impression that we love it, that it's important to us. And yet often it is simply a prop that we use to disguise the fact that we've got sin in our life and it's really not that big a deal to us. Why is it that here in America, where nine out of ten households own a Bible. 
where one out of four Americans own more than five Bibles. Why is it that U.S. News and World Report indicates that 80% of us, so we say, believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Why is it in a culture that is so saturated and by and large at least admitting so agreeable to the Bible, spend so few minutes in the Scripture. The Barna Research Group indicates that 52% of Americans don't even read the Bible at all. Yet 80% believe it's the inspired Word of God. Why is it that half of that half that don't read are evangelical Christians? And if you're not real sure what that means, that means probably most of us gathered here. In a nation so inundated with the Scriptures, why don't we spend time in the Scriptures? If you've got kids, you can see a great example of probably why we don't do it. I look at my daughters, I wouldn't say every night, but almost every night at the supper table, struggle to get the last green bean in their stomach. But if you were to put a plate of cake and ice cream, they could lick the plate clean enough to put back in the cabinet. Why is that? Because it reveals what we crave, doesn't it? We don't have room for green beans. We've got plenty of room, though, for cake and ice cream. Apply that now to the Word of God in your life. Why is it we've got plenty of time to go hunting and movies and all this kind of stuff as opposed to spending time in the Scriptures? Because that's what we crave. You eat what you want to eat. You spend time with what you want to spend time with. And so Peter tells us and takes the illustration of kids wanting food to an even younger level and says, look at a baby. There's nothing that satisfies a baby but the Word of God. Uh, there's nothing satisfied a baby but milk. It says, and for you, as a believer, your milk ought to be the Word of God. Now, for a baby, it's a natural craving. For us, it's not. And so this is placed in the form of a command. Long for the pure milk of the Word. Why? Because by it, you grow in respect to salvation. What we eat reveals what we're hungry for. And so here's a principle that we can apply to our lives, that is that the priority given to personal time in the Bible reflects priority given to spiritual growth. You may remember some years ago in the Tournament of Roses parade, there was a float that uh, ran out of gas and stopped the whole parade. You know, everything behind it had to stop until they could put some gas in this float. And what was ironic is it was the float that represented the Standard Oil Company. And what is so funny about that is that you've got this company that has vast resources of gasoline, and yet they don't put enough in their float to represent them as they're going down the street. Boy, what a convicting little illustration to take right back to us. That we, particularly as believers here in the United States of America, that any translation you happen to be in the mood for that minute, we've got. 
The problem is not the availability of the Word of God. The problem is getting the Word of God in our tank, in spite of its great availability. The problem really isn't time to spend in the Bible, is it? You say, well, I don't really have time to, to read the Word of God. Well, think about the other things in your life. There's probably not many of you who have gone one day in your life without eating a meal. Now, why is that? Is that something that you is really a big priority for you? Sure it is. And it's a need. Why is it a need? Because that's the only way that you satisfy that physical hunger for growth. Your body is demanding energy for growth through food. Why is it then that we don't have hunger pangs when we don't spend time in the Bible? Why doesn't our spiritual life hunger then when we don't spend time in the Bible? Why do we fast from Scripture and we don't really have a problem with that? Probably because we don't have room on our plate for green beans, but we've got plenty of room on our plate for cake and ice cream. Or if I can mix Peter's metaphors a little bit here, we've got plenty of time for the grass that falls off and the flower that fades away. We've got plenty of time for the things that fade, but no time for the milk of the eternal Word of God that is the sole source of our spiritual growth. Now, I'm not here to make you feel bad, all right? That's not my job. But if I don't, if I don't tell you exactly what the Scripture's saying, I need to quit. And we're just kidding ourselves. Because the bottom line is that the priority given to time in the Bible is a priority that you've given to your spiritual life. If you don't have priority time in the Bible, then your spiritual life is not a priority to you. There's a direct one-for-one relationship. My encyclopedia defines physical starvation this way. It says, Starvation in humans is an abnormal state or syndrome that results from a food intake of inadequate quantity or from a failure to properly metabolize food. Starvation manifests itself first by weight loss and body wasting, if unrelieved, it may progress to emaciation, diarrhea, secondary infection, and eventually death by heart failure. How ironic what's true of us in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. Maybe you can go a day or so, yeah, without it, but eventually it gets right at the heart, and your heart stops. Same is true with the spiritual life. If you fast from the Word of God, it's going to affect your heart. And from your heart come the wellsprings of life. Everything is affected when your heart is affected, either for the good or for the worse. So you see, our problem is not a lack of resources. Our problem is not a lack of time. Our problem is a lack of priority, a lack of importance. Jesus made the statement in a moment of temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, not just physical, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, one thing we can learn today is that the most important meal every day is not breakfast. It's Bible. It's time with their spiritual, spiritual food. Now, why is this such a problem for us? I mean, obviously, this, this convicts us all, myself included. 
Why is this such a problem to us, to spend regular time in the Scriptures? Well, because we live in a culture where that's not a big deal, where that's not a priority. In fact, the culture rejects that. Look at what Peter says in verse 4 and following. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you, who believe. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus was, by all the standards of his day, a total failure? The people, even many of the people who followed him prior to his death and after his death, prior to his resurrection, were shaking their heads going, man, what a way for the Messiah to act. Total failure. You think it's going to be much different before you and I are resurrected? You think the world's going to look at us much different as far as priority? You think it's going to encourage us to spend time in the Word of God? No, it's not. It's going to try to squeeze us into its mold instead. God promises all believers will not be disappointed. Even though the world rejects those priorities, if you will focus on those priorities, He says those who believe in Him shall not be disappointed. It's contained in Scripture. This is a promise, Peter says. It's a precious value for those of you who believe. Well, where does the disappointment come then? Well, it comes for those who don't believe. If you finish uh, verse 7, start at verse 7 and we finish and go on, Peter says, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Back in 1992, there was a, an armed robber arrested over in South Dakota. And when they opened his wallet, police found a little piece of paper that had, you might say, a credo on it of uh, the values of this armed robber. And this is what was written on that piece of paper. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. Three, I will rob only at night. Four, I will not wear a mask. Five, I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. Six, if I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. Seven, I will rob only seven months out of the year. Eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Nothing like a moral thief, is there? And in a sense, that's the way all, the way all people are who try to, to stand before God with their own flawed sense of morality. Come before God and say, hey, Lord, I only robbed seven months out of the year. 
Then God's going to look at the seven. The fiver is going to look at the seven. Sin is sin in the sight of God. What Peter is saying in these verses is that what the, Lord, what the world has rejected, that has become the very cornerstone. The living Word of God, Jesus, that the world rejected, that's the only means by which you get to heaven. And it says that they, are, they stumble because they're disobedient to the Word, the Bible. You've got your own standards, that doesn't matter. God judges by the standards of His Word. And to this doom, he says, they were also appointed. But, major contrast, verse 9, he says, that's not the way you are, though. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I hope you see how this is all tying together because Peter is saying you've got to keep an eternal focus in this life. You've got to focus on what lasts. And what lasts is what you've got to love. God's Word and God's people. What's the motivation for having those kind of priorities? He told us in verse 9 and 10, particularly verse 10. You once were not a people. Remember where you were before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? On your way to hell? But now you are the people of God. Remember once when you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy? So what's the whole motivation for loving God's people even when they don't love you? For reading God's Word in a culture that hates God's Word. Grace. God's mercy when you were headed to hell. Not being God's people, and He made you God's people. Grace is the motivation. There's a great story. Actually, it's not just a story, it's true. Uh, a book I'm reading now, there's a, a junior high school teacher named Nolan Deschamps. I think I'm pronouncing his, word, his name correctly. Nolan Deschamps. He teaches at a junior high school about 25 miles east of Houston. And his specialty is working with uh, 14 to 16-year-old kids who were basically called problem children. People who are known gang members, people who have low self-esteem, people who uh, are, are uh, low grades and low motivation. Okay? The, kind of, the kind of guys that you don't want your daughters to date. Okay? This guy teaches them. And he gathers them all together in the class and he kind of sets the tone the first day of class for the whole year. And he, a he, he asks these hardened teenagers to put their heads down on their desks to where it's just them and their thoughts. And then in his low, gentle voice, he says, Now I want you to think about your mother. I want you to think, imagine if you can, how she felt about you when you were in the womb. How you felt as a baby in her arms as she nursed you. How, you felt when you, how she felt when you took your first steps or you said your first word and you ran to her and she embraced you with open arms and she had the glimmer in her eye. How do you feel 
with that kind of love. Think of all the things she's done for you in changing your diaper, in feeding you, preparing your meals, washing your clothes. And then he says, I want you to take a deep breath and be very still. And I'll read his very words. He says, imagine now that you're dying. That the next four or five breaths will be your last. As you call out her name with your last breath, are you calling out to a mother you've made proud by the things you did in your life or to a mother who will always feel sorrow for the life you led? I believe each and every one of you wants your mother to be proud of you. I know I do. And then he says, and that's what we're doing here. It's not about grades. It's about your mother being proud. And at this point, of course, it's not unusual to see a boy or two wiping tears from his face. As he gets a whole new lesson on why he is to act good. Not just to get through school, not just to make good grades, but to make somebody proud. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your heads down on the chair in front of you, but I do want to ask you to think, not about your mother, but about your Heavenly Father. That in the same sense and with the same grace, in fact, grace that goes even beyond the love of a mother, that you, through faith in Jesus Christ, by His grace, were born into His family. And that He has taken care of your needs from even the time before you placed your faith in Him. And how He has taken care of you day in and day out of your rebellious life. And He loves you no matter what you do. Now why are we to do what Peter has said in these verses today? Why are we to love unconditionally God's people? Why are we to love unconditionally God's Word? Because they last forever. But what's the motivation for those things? Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Is God going to send you to hell if you don't make good grades in this life? No. You've placed your faith in Jesus. So why live a good life? To make Him proud? To honor Him? To live a life worthy of the calling you've received? That's a good reason. In fact, that's the biblical reason, motivated by grace. God commands us, it's not a request, to go beyond the feeling love for one another to showing love for one another. And also, the priority given to the personal time in the Bible reflects the priority given to your spiritual life. We should love what lasts. Only two things, God's Word, and God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we just all bow before you today and in a sense put our heads down on the desk. And in the privacy of our own thoughts and the privacy of our own life right now, we bow before you and admit to you that like this culture in which we live, we have, even as Christians, made willful decisions to reject you throughout our lives. 
I pray today that as, the, as we're motivated by your grace, that we had not received mercy, but now we have through faith in Jesus. That we would be unlike the culture and we would go beyond the feeling love, the love of self and the love of pure feeling to a love of selflessness. And I pray that we would desire our spiritual lives to grow and to let that growth be reflected in time spent in the scriptures. Strengthen us, Lord, today to love what lasts, and we know that we will not be disappointed. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Lord bless you.